Know the word hate. Just knowing that this is a word that is like been built, created. It is also astounding to me how much this word has saturated down to the very bedrock of our culture. Our ability to deal with our emotions. Our ability. Sorry, I'm going to grab this mic. Sorry. Our ability to create words that deal with our emotions like this is so astounding. In fact, hangry has now been put into the dictionary, so we got a definition. Hangry. Adjective, informal, bad-tempered, or irritable as a result of hunger. I know that in our house we throw it around once in a while. You're, you're grumpy. You're angry. You're complaining. It's because you're hungry. You're hangry. And, and to be true, there's also been scientific studies that have been working on this issue. Studies that have linked the, the chemicals that are produced in the brain when we, our blood sugar drops with the same chemicals that are present when we are angry. Scientists are finding that hangriness is a reality. And let me be honest with you. You can look at me and tell... I like food. And when I don't have enough food in my world, I get angry. As we look at our passages of Scripture, I need you to keep this concept in your mind. That when we begin to look at our base needs, when we begin to miss how hungry we are, we begin to attach those things to the emotions And we have several stories that we have to talk about today. I tried to just do one, but there is some points in my study of Scripture that it happens like this. You read one passage of Scripture, and it doesn't give me quite the answers I was looking for. And as I read it, I recognize that the passages and stories around it are actually integral for understanding this one. And then these stories way back there are necessary for us to study it. We're going to read a passage of scripture today that's our focus, but really there are at least four stories attached to this one short interaction with Jesus. So if you'd open with me to John chapter 6, starting in verse 24, we're going to read this and then I'm going to have the um, sound guys bring it right back to the beginning of this this passage, and I'm going to preach through the passage today. And we're going to reach out and grab other stories along the way, and we're going to try and figure out what is happening here. Okay? When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very, I, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because You saw signs I performed, but because you you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do do 
What must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus replied, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our answers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the word of the Lord. So we got to set up the story a bit better. Because when I look at passages of scripture, I'm just going to give you a window behind the process of preaching. I look at a story, I look at a passage of scripture, and I begin to ask, what is the problem here? What am I having to deal with? The first thing is this. If, if I can't find a problem... Like in this passage, when I just read this little verse, I'm like, okay, yeah, Jesus is the bread of life. I've known that since I was a kid. Whoever comes to him will never be hungry or thirsty. Where's the problem? Why, why is, where's the tension? Where's the reality of this passage? Why is it here? your own internal struggle and conflict. So for this passage, oh, I had to turn and begin to look at myself. And I had to begin to search around the other texts in the passage. We begin the story with all these people finding Jesus in Capernaum. But it's actually important to know why they're looking for Jesus. Just the day before, Jesus was teaching on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he was preaching and preaching, and his disciples came to him and said, all these people, these, these 5,000 people, that's what we understand from this passage. Jesus feeds the 5,000. They're hungry. They're grumbling. Their stomachs, we can hear them at a distance. And what are we going to do about it? We need to send them away to go eat, and we'll deal with them another day. Jesus tells them, Go buy food and feed them, knowing that it would, they would not have enough money. There was no way they could have six months' wages to feed 5,000 people. But they find five small loaves and two small fishes. You guys have heard the story, right? It, it's one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. Jesus breaks it. He gives it out. They eat and they eat until they've had their fill and then they pick up leftovers, 12 baskets full of leftovers. And that's usually where we end that story. Talking about the extravagant grace, the extravagant blessings that God has done in this story. But what happens next is kind of interesting. Because the people begin, 5,000 of them here, 5,000 people begin to go, this has got to be the prophet, the one that God promised right? Like, 
Oh, he, he's the one. And, and you can begin to hear the excitement of the crowd rising. And Jesus recognizes that they're going to make him king by force. So he retreats, and his disciples retreat, and they go to the other side of the lake. Jesus, this is, there's a middle story that's really cool, which we're going to tell another time. Jesus goes on the mountainside, prays, walks across water. All of that stuff happens. And then we get to the other side, and this crowd wakes up going, where'd he go? He didn't get in the boats. Where is he? He's going to be our king. We need him. And so they go in search of him. They get in boats and they go to the other side. We don't know if it's all 5,000 people, but it is a large, large crowd that looks for Jesus in Capernaum. And they find him and they go, when did you leave? Why did you leave? We are here for you. Come on, let's go. And I want you to hear this about Jesus. Jesus turns and talks to them. Jesus isn't always a meek, mild person. In fact, the image I got as a kid was that Jesus was like this little lamb all the time. Quiet and meek. Soft-spoken. I don't think this passage is about Jesus being soft-spoken. I don't think that at all. Because the image of Jesus is not that of a lamb. He's a lamb in the way that he was slain, and he gave him himself and his life for us. But often, there is this other image of Jesus like a lion. Dangerous, bold, exciting. And when they come to him going, where did you go? He knew that they had been intending to make them their king. He heard the, the 5,000 people murmuring. And he turns at them. And I don't think it's in a soft voice. I think he rebukes them. And I think he would have scared them a little and said, you did not come because you saw the signs and you wanted to follow me. You came because you're hungry. You're hangry. You want more of this bread. I tell you, do not look for the things that will rot away, but seek the eternal bread of life. Do the work of the Father. Oh my goodness. When, when you start to see the context, these people have been coming at Jesus with their own ideas of what he should be like. He should be my king and we're going to make him by force. He should feed us. If, if in today's culture someone would have seen Jesus feed 5,000 people from five small loaves, they would have tried to get him a spot in Vegas and make him do magic. No, 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 Jesus. You can't talk about that stuff. You've got to do what we tell you. You're going to be a star. You have got to fit into my image of you. These people see Jesus as a commodity. They have their own ideas of what the kingdom of heaven should look like. They have their own ideas of what this is supposed to look like. And Jesus is still bold when he turns to them. And when he says this, I tell you, you're looking for the wrong things. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work of God? I love this because he's so simple. Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Let's pause. Believe, right? 
I struggled with that concept as a teenager, as a kid. I believe, I believe. It, it reminded me of the story of Peter Pan, right? If, if you believe in the fairy and you clap, she'll come back to life. Just believe, just believe. But more accurately, when we talk about belief, we are talking about trust. We are talking about trust not in our understanding or in our image of what the gospel should be like or what Jesus should be like, but in trust in who God is. This is what he is saying. Trust and follow me. Trust and follow me. So they complain a little more. What sign then will you give us? Let me just say this. He just fed them, all 5,000 of them. They, they followed him from town to town and watched him do miracles. And they need more signs? They, they begin talking about how, how Moses made manna rain down in the desert every morning, and they had this fresh bread. They're still thinking with their stomachs. You hear that? They're still a bit hangry right now. And even if you look back at the passage in Exodus, here's story three that we have to look at. The story in Exodus, what happens is the people of God have been brought out of slavery. The Red Sea is parted. There has been water purified in the desert. And they still begin to grumble and complain at Moses and said, did you bring us out here to kill us? We might as well go back. We can sit by the hot pots. Forget that whole slavery thing. We'll just deal with it. Did you bring us out to kill us? They're complaining and grumbling. And not just 5,000, but thousands, hundreds, close to a million people in the desert complaining about what God is doing. And they have this short-term memory issue. Like Moses gave us the sign. Why, why can't you? Give us more bread. We demand bread. We demand it. Give me a sign. I can tell you this never floats well with Jesus. Never. Not once. So Jesus turns, and I think still in a little bit more of an aggressive tone, honestly, I'd tell you this. Not Moses, it was not Moses who gave them the bread from heaven, but it was the Father. You missed it. It was the Father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay. You missed it. I, I don't give you bread. Jesus isn't giving you bread. God provides and he gives it to give life. That was the blessing in the desert with the manna. When God would send every morning fresh bread. It had to be good, right? And it is also the blessing of Jesus. Not that he fed the 5,000, but that God sent him the bread of life to be broken and given out for all of us. We focus on the wrong things. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. We demand this bread. And I love this. In, in a subtle way, Jesus says, I am. 
And if, and if you are looking at the Old Testament, if you're looking throughout Scripture, when Jesus says, I am, it's this, this kind of a wink and a nudge. I am. I, I, am, I am part of God. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. But as I have told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All of these stories work together. And I look at them in the beginning and recognize that I didn't see a problem in this passage in the beginning. But when I look deeper and I look in the mirror, I recognize that I come with short-term memory loss. I come with my own ideas of who Jesus should be. And I come worrying about the wrong things, letting worry drive me. We're going to talk about these things just for a moment because I think once we unearth the struggle, the problem in Scripture, we have to figure it out a little better. We have short-term memory problems. Think about it. No matter what someone has done good in your life, no matter how many times God has bailed you out, you've seen God work, there are times in our lives when we come to God going, why aren't you giving me more bread? Why can't you give me more signs? For the people of God in Egypt, it was this we demand bread, this, this complaining, this almost coup over food. And God provides but God has been providing all along the road. I, I am so thankful that you guys come on Sunday mornings. Like Ann and I and Jung Mo and Pastor Mark, we all have to be here. But you choose to get out of bed and to join us. But there are points in this journey together that I, I think we all forget that God has been providing, and when we are attending, we're not attending to the sp specific type of music or the specific type of preaching going, I'm not getting fed enough, well enough. And we start complaining. And I'm not saying this about any of you. This is, this is something that I see in churches all the time. In every church I've been in, there's always some underlying complaining happening where the kingdom of God or what's happening doesn't mesh with my understanding what the kingdom should be. So there's complaints. And we forget that it's God who gives us the bread of life. We have short-term memory issues. Second thing, Jesus is more than a commodity. I believe deeply that sometimes we look at Jesus as if he is a commodity in our lives. We can see his value, but we want him to fit into our lives in just this way. We need him to feed us this bread every day. We're going to follow him to see signs and for him to do miracles, but not for him to grant us to work in the ultimate gift of eternal life. Why did you come this morning?
What bread are you looking for? Is it bread for the the short term? To to deal with your hangriness. When I was a kid, I loved taking communion. Up until about 12, you'll find this hard to believe, I was as skinny as a rail. I was a skeleton kid. And I had this metabolism. I just wanted to eat all the time. And in about middle of church, every week, my stomach would be grumbling. So I looked forward to communion Sunday because, like, they're going to hand me a little bit of food. And I would, I would take this communion and I'd eat the bread and the little thin wafers and drink that little cup. And then I'd lick the inside of the cup because there just wasn't enough. I was like, God, why can't you give us full rolls and, and big cups for communion? This isn't enough. But I came for the wrong bread. As a kid, I knew Jesus, but I didn't understand that what I was participating in was the eternal blessing, the extravagant gift of God that is embodied by Jesus as the bread of life broken for us, his blood spilled out for us, and that giving me bread that will cause me never to need anything else because God has taken care of everything. The struggle in this passage is also the crowd. If you pay attention in John, there's this interesting thing he does. In one moment, the crowd wants to make Jesus king. After he feeds them, all 5,000 of them, there's leftovers, there's awesomeness, and they want to make him king. They're going to make him king by force. And after this moment, when they said, when Jesus begins to talk about the bread of life as himself, and that you're going to end up having to eat my flesh and drink my blood, a metaphor they can't understand because I don't want to eat you. I'm hangry. Many of the disciples will choose Many of these people will choose to walk away. This is a hard teaching who can take it. Peace. And this is why it never made sense to me. Where's the tension in this conflict? It's because we have our own understandings of who Jesus is supposed to be. And I think this is part of it. We have short-term memory issues. We look at Jesus as a commodity for the short-term needs that we have. And we spend our lives worrying way too much. We let worry drive. Let me just be honest with you. I struggle with worry. I stress and worry and stress and worry about where things are supposed to happen tomorrow, about all details and types of food, and if we have enough food in the house and what what we need to do, I worry and I worry and I worry. And I stress and I stress and I stress. And when I'm driving me, I can tell you that I've lost sight of my own spiritual life. Because I forgot to see the blessings in front of me. 
because I forgot to see that God has already given me the bread of life and everything I need to sustain. And if I seek first the kingdom of God, then all that other stuff will be added to me. Why does the crowd leave? Because they can't get over their own vision of what the kingdom should look like. Why does the crowd leave? Because Jesus refuses to be the commodity that they want him to be. Why does the crowd leave? Because they're worried about what they're going to eat next. Because they've allowed worry to drive. Now all of this, this passage, when, when we kind of look at it and look in the mirror, I feel exhausted. But despite these things, despite these things, this passage is also incredibly freeing. Can I tell you that? When we come looking for things that are going to rot and fall away, when we come with our own worry and anxiety, Jesus says, no, I am the bread of life. God has sent me to die for you in this extravagant way, in this extravagant gift, so that you do not have to worry about tomorrow and the day after and eternity. But I have given you the bread that leaves to life. So, so take your worries. Take those things that you think should happen. Place them on me. Jesus invites us to focus on more than just our worries. That, that fourth story really is the story that Jesus talks about worry in Matthew. Where he talks about flowers and how beautifully they're clothed and birds of the air and how fat they're getting. And yet they don't work and toil. They don't stress and worry. And God takes care of them. How much more does our God who loves you care for you? And in the midst of that, there's also a promise. We always talk about the worry and say, don't worry, but I think we miss this. And it says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. If you're going to worry, worry about the kingdom. Worry about eternal things. The thing that happens in John, not only with the crowds, but Jesus continually points people to the spiritual concepts of life and not to the earthly things. For Nicodemus, he was confused about how does someone get born again? We're talking born in spirit. Born into new life and to freedom. For the woman at the well... She, she's worried about, how are you going to draw water? How, how, you don't have anything to do this with. This is, this is dumb. Jesus said, if you'd asked, I'd have given you this living water that swells up to eternal life. Not only do we have short-term memories, but worry causes us to have short-term vision. Because our God wants us to look beyond those things. 
something greater than worry. And what I think is the coolest thing about this passage, the thing that, that makes my heart complete, is this. That despite my complaining, despite my desire to control the world, to worry, despite everything that I bring to the table, and despite my desire to make Jesus the king in my earthly world rather than my heavenly world, God still provides extravagantly. When the disciples are questions, are you going to leave too? The twelve. All these people have just escaped because they, they're focused on the wrong things. They're focused on the short term. They have short term memory loss and they can't quite get on board with Jesus' vision, with God's vision for the kingdom. He goes, are you guys going to leave too? And I love this line. Oh, I love it. It's the line that I would love to utter to Jesus myself. Where else would I go? You have the words of life. Why do we come this morning? Not for music. Certainly not to hear me speak. But because where else would we go? Because you have the words of life. So today as we close, the last question in most of my sermon process is what now? What do we do with this? Now that we've rooted out the problem, now that we've talked about the implications of scripture, what do we do with this and how do we live best into it? I think it's this. We lay our worries. We lay our stresses. We lay our visions of the kingdom down and seek his kingdom to the best of our ability. So that when we come every week, when we come to receive communion, we come because he has the words of life. We we do our best to release the, the stress and the worry and the tension and worry about the eternal things rather than the earthly things. Because I'll tell you how freeing that is. Last week during BBS, there was this thing, this song that just echoed in my head all week. As I'm stressed and worried, don't worry about a thing. Hmm. I worry too much about the wrong things. And singing that song, I walked out feeling lighthearted. Not just because of a song, but because I recognized that the gift of Christ to die for my sins, to take that worry off the table, the gift of God when he provides for me every day is far more important than paperwork and phone calls, than stress at work, than complaining. 
hungry for God, but not hangry for the earthly things of this world. At least that's my hope. I'm going to invite you now to stand with me. We're going to pray, and they're going to sing this song called Broken Vessels. And I would love it if you are like me when you come to this passage and recognize that you're looking in a mirror, that you would find a space to release that worry, that tension, that own image of the kingdom on these altars. Let me pray, and then the altars are open now. God, I come to you releasing my own ideas of your words. Releasing my stress and worry and seeking first your kingdom, God. God, Jesus had the right to yell at me. To tell me that I'm focused on the wrong things. I didn't come to follow or trust. But I came because I had my own selfish desires and needs on the line. But today, you offer us the bread of life. Your body broken and spilled out for us so that we may be free so that we may trust and believe in you. And God, with my whole heart, I want to say, to who else would I go? Because you have the words of life. Let me pray. yourself down, raising the broken to life. God, we come and we confess. God, we seek you with all our hearts. And we lay down our own agendas at your feet. Our stresses, our worries, everything is yours. We seek this bread, the bread of life that you have already poured out generously a benediction. We do this in our teen group a lot. A benediction is a blessing. It's meant to send us out into the world to prepare us for the week ahead. So I'm going to raise my hands, but you're going to hold your hands right about here. And it's kind of like catching a football. It's right in this space. They, They used to believe that the heart and the soul lived right around the stomach. I believe all good things live there too. And and so people would hold their hands here to receive a blessing. And and I'm going to hold my hands up to just allow God to throw a blessing through the uprights. So may God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May you experience 
the everlasting bread of life that was poured out and broken for you today. Go in peace.